2: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeart Radio. South African filmmaker Richard Stanley is hard to define. Part anthropologist, part journalist, and part Hollywood outsider making boundary-pushing films. Stanley grew up in apartheid South Africa, shooting tribal dances and rituals, and later filming in war-torn Afghanistan, choices that have greatly informed his perspective. In the nineties, he wrote and directed the films Hardware and Dust Devil, blending the science fiction and horror genres. His next film was the third adaptation of H.G. Wells' novel The Island of Dr. Moreau, a terrifying morality play on scientific ethics starring Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer. The troubled production went quickly downhill and Stanley was removed from the project only three days in. The chaos was captured in the documentary Lost Soul The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's The Island of Dr. Moreau. Following the fallout, Stanley produced several documentary films and covered events in Rwanda and Uganda. He returned to mainstream movie making with the 2019 film Color Out of Space, an escalating extraterrestrial spiral based on the H.P. Lovecraft short story and starring Nicolas Cage. Richard Stanley is one of the most intelligent and articulate filmmakers I've ever met, and articulate about the actual work itself. So I wanted to know how, with such an interesting background, Stanley first found his way to film.
5: I started messing around with um, Super 8 cameras from um, early childhood. I think it wandered into my life when I was about four years old. Wow. My Dad brought home a sixteen-millimeter print of King Kong, yes. uh, and um, kind of fancied himself as a filmmaker. And there was sixteen-millimeter equipment lying around that I remember playing on as a uh, as a toddler. And um, Kong caught my attention very early, and um, I kind of it was a gateway drug to the um, the Ray Harryhausen movies. And by the time I was ten, I was messing around with Claymation dinosaurs, like a lot of other kids. I'll have you
2: know that I ordered a copy of the film fantasy scrapbook uh, by Harry Potter.
5: Completely important, yeah. I've got yes, two I ordered of a
2: copy from online today,
5: re- inspired by you. The Ray Harryhausen Film Fantasy Scrapbook was really the first time I saw Ray's artwork, as well as the drawings by Willis O'Brien and Mario Laranaga and some of the other folk. And it's just such incredible work that even in
2: black and white reproductions, I was, yeah, mesmerized at an early age. I see my own children, so we have quite a few kids running around, and my son... Uh, a couple of them uh, have four boys and two girls, and the oldest son who's about six. When I think about it, and when I get honest about it, I shouldn't be sub- surprised by his fascination with all things horror. He wants to watch Alien, and he wants to watch the the monster come shooting out of John Hurt's thorax in the middle of Alien, and he and and he loves. And when I think about when you mentioned Harryhausen in this book, when I was a child. I had a friend, my best friend and his brother, Kevin and Keith Cornelius, lived behind me, and they uh, would subscribe to famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Well, yeah, yeah.
5: Famous Monsters was hugely significant, yes, absolutely yes. massive. I, I saw yeah. my first copy when I was four years old. Yeah. Famous Monsters and the other Warren titles, Creepy and Eerie and Vampirella, that came <laughs> at that same time in the late 60s, early 70s, that just yes. had covers that were so bright and so yes. eye-popping that they
2: completely gr- jumped off the stands into your life. And my family, we didn't have the money. We didn't have the resources to buy. But they would buy like the latex, like the rubber claws, the hands of the creature of the Black Lagoon. They'd buy Frankenstein sutured hands. They'd get the head piece with the bolts for Frankenstein. They get, And we would make movies. He had a brownie. He had a little Super 8, and we'd go in the background. We would take two picnic benches, and we'd lay them on their side so that the legs of the bench were there, and for a child, you could lay down in between, and uh, and we'd put some sheets or towels down, and that was the casket of Dracula. We made a casket for Dracula, and we'd see the hand come up and grip the side of the coffin slowly. We'd film. We were obsessed And we were very young. We were six and seven with the macabre and all that other stuff. And I'm wondering, why do you think, I mean, a lot of kids just love that. Is it just the drama? I guess so. And there's also a sense of taboo
5: about it. Um, The harder (laughs) that people try to censor things or take things away from you, the more it bestows value and the more you feel that you actually need them. I mean, to some extent, horror movies were never any fun anymore after I was old enough to watch them. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <it's just>
2: about, <laughs> <laughs> to understand what moment, they were trying to do to you. Yeah, and yeah,
5: the moment you hit 18, you've got other concerns. There's women woman in your life, and uh, you have yeah. to make money, and life yeah. goes on. But, um, and somehow it's not important. But up to that point, they're a, a, a kind of a, a forbidden fruit. In a way, they also um, speak some kind of
2: truth that you can't get from the adults or the school teachers. Yeah, I think that my kids... If they were like me, it was uh, forbidden, and it was also just the chance to completely occupy someone that was not you. You know you really could play a character. But to get back to um, your you go to the South African College of Music, correct?
5: Well I got I got a job there um basically shooting for their archival section when I was um a teenager which um got me posted to some of the um what they used to call the homeland states in apartheid era South Africa I should make a note that um Growing up in um, apartheid era South Africa, which was essentially a police state, the horror movies and the genre movies, uh, and particularly the horror comics of that period of the 1970s, were really the place that I acquired my social conscience from. It definitely didn't come from my school teachers or from the government or from my parents, um, God bless their souls. All of that was coming from the comic book writers in um California and places who were doing a lot of LSD at that point in time and who were writing su- yeah, super challenging material, though very politicized at that point in time, and all of it came through um through the genre, so I was super glad for that. Basically ended up as a cameraman in um in the Trance sky, shooting um, tribal um, dance and initiation rituals, which was um, another area that's always um, drawn me. If it hadn't been for um, the regrettable geopolitical circumstances, I think I might have stayed in South Africa and become an anthropologist.
2: Now, uh, we know in your childhood, when you're growing up, your mother was an English anthropologist and you moved to South Africa. Was it Cape Town? Is that the city you grew up in?
5: Yeah, I grew up in Cape Town Um, when my mom initially quit England and went to Africa. She went first to um, Zimbabwe. She went to Bulawayo first because it had the word away in it. (laughs) <laughs> and it was a, a sufficiently long way from uh, um, yeah, right. post-war England. She just wanted to get the hell out and yes. uh, more or less picked it at random. But because she trailed with her a, an interest in witchcraft and in the um, the fairy culture, the fairy folklore of the West Country, I think she um, saw a side of Africa that the other um colonial um, European settlers were um, oblivious to. She pursued that doggedly and ended up writing a cornerstone book on um, African mythology. But uh, accordingly, in the first few years of my life, the first three or four years, she was um, dashing around to um, one bunch of tribal people after another and always trying to find the Sangoma or the the traditional healer. Uh, and I guess instilled a, a set of values in me where I came to see these people as figures of extraordinary value and power.
2: And what about your dad? What did he do?
5: Uh, he was a, a basically a, a travel writer. Uh, and, uh had a a gig for um mobile oil that um really worked for him where he was writing um kind of little travel brochure things for um mobile in return for free gasoline and um doing star rating guides for um hotels and campsites so that um kept him on the move and kept the gas tank full uh, that's pretty much um mm-hmm. uh, yeah what he did the whole of his life
2: now um when you go and shoot the Tribal Dances and Initiation Rituals, rituals, did you accompany your mother? Were you working with your mother then?
5: No, I was out on my own by the time I actually got to um, start shooting material in the, um, the Transkei and the other homeland places. This was when I was in my early teens. My mum's um, interest in um, tribal witchcraft and tribal magic, um, I guess, um, influenced me hugely. Mostly because it was something that none of the other kids had any real interest in. And when I went, to, when I was old enough to go to school and mix with, um, yeah, other um, European kids, I was um, shocked to find that they um, didn't believe in any of the stuff or um, had only the, um, yeah, the most horrifying kind of prejudiced
2: notions about it. Now, when you're there, describe briefly, if you can, about these tribal dances and initiation rituals and how did what I'm assuming was the richness on any level, style, wardrobe, music, uh, the choreography itself, how did this, what effect did this have on you in terms of your own uh, film career? Did you bring some of the things you observed to
5: your other films? Oh, most certainly. And in a way, it actually pushed me into filmmaking at the at the top, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a filmmaker. But um, the more time I hung out in the on the wrong side of the tracks in South Africa with long hair and a camera, the more trouble I got into with the um, authorities and the, the 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 more I was construed as um, basically having a political context, because um, that's the only way they saw things back there. And that um, eventually led to me um, basically fleeing the country. Uh, and um, when I ended up um, finding asylum in um, in London and um, in England, um, the only thing I had to show for myself was a bunch of deeply weirdly dressed people um, dancing and doing strange things in a number of um, yeah spectacular locations, which I was eventually able to translate into a job making music videos for the, uh, <laughs> the yeah the music business. So it, it gave me an in.
2: Yeah, I was going to say then, at some point, You go and make music videos uh, for... Public Image Limited, uh, S-Express, Noir, Desire. These are all uh, African bands? South African bands? No, no,
5: these are British bands. So, oh, you know, then,
2: I mean, this is when you went to London. Yeah, Public
5: Image Limited's John Lydon's band. Uh, oh, there um, you go, there the, you go, okay. Yeah, the first, uh, it was the first uh, um, proper union shoot I ever did when I graduated from a Super 8 camera to a full union crew and, yeah, Honey Wagon and, um, you know, the makeup fans, the Full Monty. It was a, a terrifying
2: day, but the... the, the it was the potential for getting drafted into the the Angolan war that propelled you to want to leave and go to London correct
5: yeah, I was in the cadet school for two years and I was supposed to um, go straight into the South African Defence Force and um, become an officer and um, go to the um, Angolan Bush War. The family had a, um, a long military tradition uh, that was just like what you did at a certain age um, as you were supposed to go in the army. By then I developed um, a huge antithesis for the apartheid regime uh, and um, the notion of having to pick up a gun and defend them um, kind of stuck in my craw. And I I didn't really believe the propaganda anyway which was telling us that the Russian army and the Cubans were across the border in Angola unless we confronted them. There'd be Russian T-62s on the streets in Pretoria in 24 hours or whatever the bullshit was at the time. I chose not to believe it and um, up stakes and left.
2: Now, when you're in, you go to the UK and you're there and then in 1989 you make your way to Afghanistan to film the uh, Soviet-Afghan war. Uh, what was the impetus for that? Why did you want to go do that? And I'm assuming put yourself at tremendous risk, correct? Yeah,
5: it was a crazy time. I don't regret it. Um, unfortunately, the cameraman was very badly injured. Um, he, he did make a full recovery, so I regret the cameraman's injuries. But um, I'm glad that we took that decision. It was an insane thing to do. Basically, it came out of um, three years of doing um, music video work in London. Uh, and it had gotten to the point that in order to pay everyone's rent and keep everything moving, we had to do pretty much um, one music video a month which meant the quality started sliding. We weren't able to pick the bands and the songs as well as I would have liked. Uh, Uh um, I was on a particularly lousy music video shoot. I've got a... um Generally, in my career, I've taken a first-on-last-off policy. I like to get there first thing in the morning before the crew arrives. And um, I like to stay until after all the cable is washed and all the lenses have gone safely back into their boxes and everything's oh. wrapped. So, um, yeah, I was coming out of the shoot in the um, the last van to, um, to leave the location. And the driver was grumbling about the stick shift on the van and said, this thing is... As hard to drive as a BTR-60, which I recognized as a lightweight Soviet troop transporter used in the invasion of Afghanistan, and I asked him what the fuck he'd been doing driving a a BTR-60 to begin with, and he told me that he was a, a jihadi. Uh, that he was down on his luck in um, London, was trying to was doing odd jobs essentially to try and save up enough money to um, go back to Afghanistan and um, fight the jihad. Uh, and I was in such a, a, a vile mood after the uh, the the promo shoot that day. I said, "Look, if I give you the money uh, to go back to the jihad, will you take me with you and um, allow us to bring cameras?" So um, that's pretty much yeah how it happened. It was on the um spur of the moment I'd been obsessed with Afghanistan for a long time ever since I, I guess reading about it as a kid in the works of Robert E Howard or um yeah Rudyard Kipling's um Man Who Would Be King
2: so when you uh arrive uh in Afghanistan when you first get there this is 89 correct yeah. What do you mean? Is there a lot of? Is it very furtive? Are you sneaking around? And you having to kind of, you're with this guy. You're accompanying him. Are you? are still with him when you get there? You're, you're following him, the jihadi. Yeah, and we, we had to we had
5: to trick our way over the uh, over the border. Um, and, um, and you first come in, we did one it, way. Well, first we tried doing it legitimately. Uh, the first way, the first trip we made in, we did with the Red Cross and with the United Nations, uh, and um, we drove in um, trucks of um, flour to um, a bunch of locations in um Ningriha Province. So we came in first um, with a legit UN food delivery uh that that was the first time that I was in country um, had my first um yeah um, vision of afghanistan saw the the lights and the um the space of the place and got the smell of it But um, on the first trip out with the UN, we um, deviated from the the path. Um, When you're um, doing those kind of runs for um, the UN, you have to really stick to the agreed course. And we we made a stop on the way, which um, freaked them out. So um, after the first food run, we were um, stripped of that position and grounded back in Frontier Province, Pakistan. We then volunteered our services to the moderate guerrilla party, to the Jamaat-Islami under um, Ahmad Shah Massoud, and they took one look at us and refused so we um, volunteered <laughs> ourselves to the yeah well, who the heck would <laughs> want to take us to know <laughs> you can't give it away <laughs> over
2: there you couldn't give it away
5: <laughs> but yeah we've we eventually gotten in with the conservative party instead with the Hezbi islami under um gulbud and Hekmatia, who are kind of the bad guys and in cahoots with um, the cia at that point in time but wow. they took us and um, we were able to um, cross the border through a, um, a secret crossing at a place called Nawab Pass and um, entered the country um, indefinitely, stayed through till after the end of the, um, the Soviet occupation.
2: Now, the, um, give me the timeline. How long do you last in that area before you decide to go home and wh- where is the home you go to? Do you go back to London?
5: Yeah, we got zapped after about three months. Um, zapped, the, meaning you got shot? Yeah, meaning we got blown up by some kind of missile that hit us on the second day of the um, Siege of Jalalabad. I, I don't really know what it was. but What year um, was that? Um, this was um, 1989. So it was, so it was early in
2: the going. You hadn't been there for very long.
5: Yeah, know it was about um, the um, Russians left on Valentine's Day on February 14th. This would have been about three months after it was the onset of the civil war mm-hmm. uh, essentially there was um <clears throat> it was um you know, um, our side, the Western-backed, Saudi-backed Mujahideen versus the remaining socialist-backed Afghans who were um, cornered inside of um, the city of Jalalabad and under massive siege, but they'd also been heavily armed by the retreating Soviet forces. So there was a a full-on confrontation. Um, Unfortunately, our side were, were, um, I found out later, also not taking prisoners and doing terrible things to some of the folk they were capturing. So, um, um, no one was surrendering. So and when folk know that they're fighting to their deaths, um, they, they they put everything they've got into it. So it was a terrible scene and mm. I think approximately a thousand people a day were getting killed in the in the first week.
2: Of the civil war.
5: Yeah, it became uh, there devolved into a civil war, which is basically betwe- it was a struggle between the different Afghan warlords to try to take power over the country once the um once the Soviet army had retreated. Uh, and eventually the, the sheer chaos of that, which I think finally resulted in a, a tank battle in the streets of Kabul, um, led to the Taliban stepping in and saying, OK, um, this has got to end. Um, now we need um, Sharia, we need strict religious government, and we need to, to, to clean this mess up. The, the civil war kind of created the conditions that enabled the Taliban to rise. So you were there for how long total? Um, I was probably in country um, not much more than four months in total. Mm. Uh, and I was probably and then where did you go? Um, I was probably uh, stuck in Pakistan for about eight months um, oh, in wow. between, um, right. we're, uh, waiting, trying to get in. There were two different trips in. We spent most of our time trapped in Frontier Province on the wrong side of the border. After falling out of Afghanistan, it was a I didn't mean to actually leave when I did, but the cameraman was severely injured and had to had to be taken to surgery and um, then um, because of a series of insane events, I'd lost my ID I'd lost my backpack and passport and had no way of proving who I was Aye. so yeah, I ended up in a jail cell in Pakistan. Uh, and um, was sprung by the British Embassy in Islamabad who um, gave me a a fresh set of travel documents and um, got me back to London via Abu Dhabi, then Istanbul,
2: and then finally Heathrow. Writer-director Richard Stanley. If you enjoy conversations with genre-bending filmmakers, listen to my episode with William Friedkin, director of The Exorcist. The films that I've made, I'm more interested in spontaneity than anything else, so I don't rehearse. I would talk to the actors and find the things that move them, either that cause them to laugh or cry or be frightened, and I would use those things things from time to time in the making of the film to suggest whenever it was necessary some emotion but I would never tell an actor really how to do it hear the rest of my conversation with William Friedkin in our archives at heresthething.org after the break Richard Stanley tells us his critique of the Island of Dr. Moreau film that got made without him
1: I'm
2: Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Writer-director Richard Stanley had written a low-budget horror screenplay when he received a call from a high-powered Hollywood producer. While I was away in in an insane
5: series of events, the screenplay for Hardware, which I'd written a while before and been pushing around, had gotten passed from hand to hand to hand, and had somehow come into the hands of Harvey Weinstein. Uh, yeah, uh, Harvey wanted to make hardware which um, I first found out about while I was still in Frontier Province. A very um, uh, angry man uh, managed to get through to me on the switchboard at the Saudi Red Crescent Hospital in, um, in um, Frontier Province who was a producer named Trix Worrell and Trix was freaked out because he'd been through sheer hell to actually reach me on the telephone. So every third word was an F word. You know, how fucking hard we have been looking for your mate, et cetera, et cetera, we're making this fucking movie. And I was trying to explain that um, hardware was getting set up at Miramax. And I remember because the day had been long and um, the hospital was full of um, people who'd lost their eyesight or children with burns or missing limbs, that um, hearing this guy swearing down the phone at me was seemed somehow offensive. And um, my, re- my reaction was simply to hang up on him. And then I tried to ignore it for a while.
2: <laughs> I'm looking. I'm looking at the one-liner here on hardware. You shoot this movie. It's released in 1990. So you must have gotten to it pretty quickly. You must have shot it in '89, or it was, it's released in September. You shot it in '90. Dylan McDermott is your lead. That's right. And what was when when so so Harvey Weinstein, I would presume, and tell me if I'm wrong. He's putting everything together. He's passing the script on to the cast. He's producing the film. Uh, uh, You're in the Harvey business, so Harvey's in control, correct? Well thankfully
5: not because it wouldn't have been hardware otherwise but right. um well it obviously became a, a grappling match for um control over what really happened with um, different um schizophrenic forces um trying to change the material I fell into it right after the war so uh, hardware is what I had in place of therapy um <sighs> it was my um way of working out the um the PTSD essentially um miramax put their money through um a company called palace pictures in the uk who um brought on a a super tough um young producer joanne seller who had never produced a movie before, but then did a a bang on job and produced the hell out of hardware, uh-huh. and were um, she was also strong enough to be able to keep Harvey at bay, so that me and Harvey didn't kill each other or um, yeah. achieve some kind of state of critical mass, because um, these insane directives from Miramax were coming in on a daily basis. On the we had fax machines in those days, like I think after three weeks in, they decided they didn't like um, John Lynch, the actor playing. Uh, Um, shades the space jockey in the movie and suggested can we write john out of the movie and replace him with a dog and that if we gave dylan a dog it would um make him more um, acceptable to a younger audience we'd have to pay him 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 less money well well, we don't want kids to like this this guy because it's it's an r-rated movie we're shooting an x-rated film here uh what's the matter if the kids like the dog or not it just got more (laughs) more and more crazy as it went along I think most of Harvey's directives were he wanted more kids in the movie, younger kids, and and, um, was constantly trying to push it towards a a younger
2: audience than it was intended. So this is your first film. I I don't want to dwell too much on Moreau, but this is your first film, Hardware, and you've got McDermott, who's made quite a few films and TV shows. I worked with him once. And he's a very accomplished actor. What was it like for you to go from a ritualistic dance... To uh, war-torn Af- civil War Afghanistan, and now you're making a movie with an American actor. What did you find was your strengths and weaknesses in directing actors in, in, in narrative films? Well, I think
5: the pleasure of coming, surviving the events in Afghanistan and stumbling straight onto set was that at least um, hell held no fear for me. Right. Uh, and, uh, under different circumstances, I would have found it a lot more intimidating. Right. Uh, at least Dylan uh, McDermott
2: wasn't in the Taliban,
5: yeah. Yeah, indeed. And um, Dylan brought a lot to it. Um, It was a a macabre state of affairs because, um, in fact, um, the character he he plays changed a lot in the course of setting the movie up because um, Mo is very different in the script. Um, I'd originally wanted Bill Paxton for the part. For whatever crazy reason, um, this was, um, coming off the time of, um, Near Dark, um, Miramax were really anti-Paxton, kind of dug their heels in, and, um, Dylan was the, um, best choice out of the very limited field that, um, they, that, um, they gave us. I think there was three guys They said, you have to have one of these three in the movie, otherwise we won't make the movie. Um, it was very, 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 um, tight. Uh, And um, Dylan's um, came onto it very pumped up, very clean shaven, uh, short hair. Um, Mo as written, was originally a a, um, a heroin addict, dying of cancer, who has been irradiated in the zone and is um, seriously not well, who has already had like one arm replaced with a prosthetic limb and is um, on the way out, Uh, um, which um, Dylan did not seem that way. He was um, a powerhouse of energy and um, super buff and just didn't resemble the character as written. So, <laughs> right. um, yeah, we <clears throat> essentially rewrote it on the, on the spot and reworked it. Also, Dylan came in as a um, a card carrying Christian with his copy of the Bible, um, and immediately noticed that the main cyborg in the movie, Mark Thirteen, was a, a biblical reference, which is something that had escaped my attention up to that point. Uh, <laughs> that de- that detail um, became a, a very interesting plot pivot.
2: Now, you do this film, and, uh, I mean, obviously there's all the legend and lore about Harvey and his uh, hands-on approach to filmmaking. Was the film something you were genuinely uh, willing to take credit for? Is it your film, by and large, or was it completely co-opted by other people? Hardware
5: is pretty much my beast. I'm, I'm happy of hardware. The worst that happened was we lost a couple of
2: um, scenes, which were trimmed out afterwards. In 1989, you were in Afghanistan... And I'm assuming that Moreau, which was released in 96, was probably shot in 95. Have you seen Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau? Have you seen the documentary? Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, Several, many times. The film is, I mean, I'm a documentary junkie, and this is one of my favorite docs of all time. But what I realized was this movie is unusual in terms of—it's almost like everybody involved in the film just wanted to get the fuck out of there. You know I mean? Like, nobody wanted to be there. They all—everybody phoned it in. Frankenheimer phoned it in. Brando phoned it in. Uh, you know, maybe not David Tullis or Feruza Balk. Maybe they're trying to keep their head above water. Val Kilmer phones it in. Everybody just is coming for a paycheck. They're all there for the wrong reason. and And the film shows. The film looks like there's so many missing scenes— The film looks like they just slapped this thing together like, this. This get this over with. Whatever we got, we got shut down, stop spending money. Initially, your work on the film before you're gone uh, involves, you know, a lot of your greatest work. I mean, the art conceptions and all the art design and things like that for what you wanted in the film. You were hired to do the film, and who hired? Who was producing? Pressman? Yeah, it was um, Big Ed, Ed Pressman. Um, It's my
5: fault. I mean, I... I developed Island of Dr. Moreau for um, years and years and years. Uh, um, At um, the point of the thing got going, um, I made another movie between um, Hardware and Moreau. I made a movie called Dust Devil in um, in Namibia. Uh, By the tail end of Dust Devil, which I, I was convinced Dust Devil was the worst Fucking thing that could ever happen to anyone. It was really a thousand miles of rough road and a, a nightmare experience beyond hell. Uh, but by the end of Dust Devil, I was about um, yeah forty grand in debt and um, basically i um, on my ass in London and needed to sell a property fast in order to um, basically um, pay off Dust Devil. <laughs> and um, that be- that, uh, somehow that became Island of Doctor Moreau. Um, I was in no position to hold on to Moreau. I mean, um, Coppola could make um, Apocalypse Now and because he was coming off the back of um, Godfather. Mm-hmm. I, was coming off, I was coming off the back of Dust, Dust Devil. Devil. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> I understand. I understand. Dust, Dust Devil wasn't the ultimate calling card, was it? Um, no, it didn't give me any power or leverage
5: over, <laughs> the, over the majors at that point in time. But what's the genesis meaning? Did you write the screenplay? Um, yeah, I wrote the screenplay.
2: Right, so, you, so how did somebody get the screenplay and say, I'm going to make this movie? Uh, forget about Dust Devil. This guy that made Dust Devil, you know, Pressman's talking to his investors or his backers. Everybody, let's just put Dust Devil out of your mind. And this guy and this script, they've got it. Meaning, how did Ed find you or you pitched him? Yeah, how it actually happened was Ed
5: found me. Um, Ed Ed found me and said, "I want you to direct Judge Dread with Sliced Alone." Hmm. Uh, I I was hugely down in my luck and in, in trouble, and I um, really needed a break. Um, I said, "Sure," but he has to keep his helmet on. Uh, we need to do Dread like he is in the fucking comic book. Uh, and, uh, this was a sticking point. Uh, and,
2: yeah, so uh, that a felt Slice movie.
5: Yeah, that's right. Uh, it, it, it's uh, Dread had to keep the helmet on, and um, because um, Hardware owed an unacknowledged debt to 2000 AD and to Judge Dread, I felt I couldn't stab the Dread franchise in the back twice. I had mm. to be, I had to stand by Dread, so I had to turn down the project. Um, but I didn't, I didn't want to let the opportunity go. So in the middle of it, I said, "Well, why don't we do Island of Doctor Moreau
2: instead?" So in that sense, were you similar to Brando and Frankenheimer and other people who they were, you were there for a paycheck. You just wanted to do a job and get a check and do your best work and get the hell out of there.
5: No, I always wanted to do Island of Dr. Moreau. You did. This was a passion of yours. Island of Dr. Moreau was a personal obsession that probably came into my life when I was was a kid. And as I Um, mentioned to
2: my producers here, Island of Dr. Moreau is to horror films what uh, a star is born is to melodrama. You know what I mean? There's been three incarnations. Island of the Lost Souls with uh, Charles Lawton, one of my favorites. Moreau with uh, Burt Lancaster. Yeah, Lancaster. And then your version, which—and uh, and, you've been dreaming about this for quite a while.
5: Yeah, I mean, I saw the Burt Lancaster version in the cinemas as a kid, and um, as a fan of the Wells novel, I came out so enraged. It was probably the first time that I, I felt I wanted my money back after seeing a film, and I think that planted the seed in my head that I, I could do a better job and um, from that point in time I kept thinking about how to improve the mousetrap and um, what a, a better Dr. Moreau would look like because I mean there's all kinds of problems with, with the material. Um, for whatever reason they insist on always playing the beast people as monsters but uh-huh. the potential inherent within um, giving animals vo- larynxes and vocal cords and what the hell would the animals say and do is so huge and it's such tasty material that um, I really uh-huh. don't feel that um, the material has been well understood or Uh um, has yet found its cinematic potential. Perhaps now that um, VFX and mocap work has moved on to the point uh, that it's reached a better, more complex
2: adaptation of Uh Wells's book might finally reach the screen. How deep into the pre-production process did you go before you were separated from the material, shall we say? How How far into it were you?
5: I went all the way through. I went through the whole of prep, uh, cast the film, and we started shooting.
2: Now, who did you cast?
5: Um, well, the, uh, the Brando was the first to come aboard. The moment we had Brando, we figured he was um, basically an actor magnet. That even if, if sure. the script, yeah, which is so, usually uh, true,
2: yeah, usually, to,
5: yeah. yeah. So I immediately went after um, Bruce Willis um, for the um, the male lead. And for oh. a while, Bruce was in. And at the point when we had um, Bruce and um, Brando um, for Mister Montgomery, um, the the third lead, I went after James Woods. Uh, so there was a, there was a point in time uh, when um quite Addis a cast. Way um, and then this enabled us to put together a formidable cast of beast people with Ron Perlman as the Sayer of the Law, um, Fruza Balk as um, Aisha the Cat Lady, um, Tamara Morrison as um, as a Zello the the Chief Dog, the, um, the Bill Hootkins as the the Grizzly Bear Guy. Um, it was, all of the beast people were tremendous actors, which is one of the um, the biggest tragedies of the Frankenheimer version is that none of these people get to do anything. They are right. standing around the film and they've all lost everything. Like right. every one of them's lost their scenes, lost their material and they, they, there's just a, a huge number of geniuses on that set who are, are not getting the chance
2: to express themselves. Richard Stanley. If you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Richard Stanley tells us what it was like to direct Marlon Brando in The Island of Dr. Moreau.
0: Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
6: Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from iHeart Radio. The production snafus on the set of The Island of Dr. Moreau were no secret, so much so that a documentary film was made about the troubled movie. I was curious about the circumstances leading up to Richard Stanley's termination as director of The Island of Dr. Moreau and how he learned he was being
5: let go. Well, I guess um, the first um, inkling, it was the middle of a hurricane as well. There was a, there, there was a, hu- a tropical storm <laughs> blowing in, and we were in the, um, the one of the worst places in the world. We were in a place called Cape Tribulation, which is named that for a reason. Um, Mount Sorrow is the big mountain brooding over it because the place has broken the backs of all kinds of folk in the past. Um, and yeah, the production vehicles stopped responding to my orders, so I couldn't um, basically get an Uber. Um, and, um, <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, that, that, that was um, yeah the, 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 the end of the wedge. Um, um, then yeah, We'd sensed it coming for a few days, particularly with the hurricane, because we'd been um, desperately trying to shoot. But it had really reached a point where it was like horizontal rain. We were unable to go and get a shot off. The set had washed away. How much did um, you shot before they fired you? Um, we shot for about two days. I shot some basically second unit stuff before the um, before principal photography started so, so you um, didn't did, you
2: didn't shoot any of the principal photography
5: No I mean we shot two days of principal photography that wasn't used in the eventual film so, you did um, you shot yeah, two I days did. of principal yeah. who was in those scenes um, Val Kilmer and um, Rob Morrow and um, yeah um, some bits with some um, yeah foruza bulk
2: and Morrow eventually left to be replaced by Tuless, correct?
5: That's right, yeah. Um, by the time um, it, all this came down, Morrow couldn't take it anymore. He was pretty much broken on day one. Um, by the, who? Uh, I think, by like all of us, by the circumstances. Um, we were yeah. on a, um, a tramp freighter at sea with a hurricane blowing in um, <laughs> off, um, off Endeavour Reef <laughs> off, by Cape off Tribulation. Off, yeah. uh, off Cape yeah.
2: Tribulation yeah. in yeah. the foot of Mount Sorrow. yeah.
5: On, yeah, on a, with a on a tramp freighter full of live animals. Um, oh, Jesus. The, yeah, uh, there was a puma on board. Um, so um, a live puma. Um, so um, uh, yeah, uh, Rob was, I think, on day one already in the on the telephone in the captain's um, wheelhouse, um, desperately trying to get hold of his agent and trying to find um,
2: some way out of there. So just two days of principle, you, you did the prep, you're, you're, you're really kind of, uh, the starter's pistol has been fired and you're off to the races here. And who tells you, who gives you the official word? Was it Ed? Did Ed take responsibility for and call you and say, we're going to replace you? Or how did you find it? Or was it just some bull? I always say that Hollywood likes to take a note and they write down, you're fired. And they put that note in a bottle and they throw it off the end of the Santa Monica Pier and they hope it gets to you. <laughs> Yeah, with, that's with about, the that's about apology right. yeah
5: i think i got it from tim Zinnemann, the um, the line producer
2: it face to face or by phone it was
5: by phone uh, and then um, there was they followed a um a desperate scene in a sushi restaurant in cans queensland where um I, I seem to recall um, Firuza, um stood up and passionately um, defended me and, um, <coughs> cried real tears uh, explained to Tim the um, bottomless pit of chaos and everlasting hellfire that would be opened if they made that decision uh, Rue was 100% right uh, they 100% didn't listen to her um, I think she said if you do this I will cut out my heart with the sushi life right here and um, it was a it was an inflammatory scene that um but it was pointless they weren't going to listen to her they didn't understand what they were doing and what was what was coming as a result
2: so then the documentary comes out a lost soul and one of my favorite moments is ferruza talks about going in to speak to brando And she wants to talk to Brando, and Brando says, you know, what can I do for you? And she said, well, we have these scenes together, and uh, I want to uh, talk to you about the scenes. Maybe we could chat a little about the scenes and maybe run some lines. And there's a pause, and Brando says, oh, no, no. He said, I haven't even read the script. And uh, or do you feel... Because um, I'm somebody who, as much as I worshiped Brando, and I do worship Brando, and I, and I went to go meet him at his home once, and at a lengthy meeting, a lunch that went on for four hours while I was trying to enlist him to do a TV movie with him, with me, because I knew he wanted money. So we were going to do Cat on a Hot Tin Roof for CBS. I was going to play Brick. He was going to play Big Daddy. It was my one chance to work with the uninsurable Brando. You know, this is Brando at a time when nobody would write a policy to hire him. And uh, I went to his house, and he was, uh, you know, unhealthy. He was big. We talked a little bit about his acting career. He could tell he was pretty much done with. I didn't have any passion for that. I mean, Brando was a guy that just stopped caring a long, long time ago. Do you feel like you dodged a bullet that you didn't have to deal with that? Or were you really really looking forward to working with Brando? Um, No, I was vastly looking forward
5: to working with Brando. And I feel that um, one of the great tragedies of The Island of Dr. Moreau is that we were deprived of a potentially great um, swan song um, performance by the man. Um, I'm super sorry that I'd have had the chance to um, try and direct him. I did actually direct him a little bit because um, I also went up to um, Mulholland a bunch of times before you the— did. Um,
2: I did. How did you approach him, someone who—I mean, when you, when you go on a set, I, I'm not Marlon Brando, and I still go to on a set uh, in the latter 20 years of my career, and people are reluctant to direct me. Well, they're too eager to direct me. They really feel that they have to come in uh, with a whip and a chair and feel like they've got to kind of tame me uh, of what, I w- what path I might go off on. And so relationships between actors, forget about how celebrated you are, relationships between actors who are experienced and directors can always be potentially thorny. Uh, how did you approach him when you talked to him? Well, I guess um, we came into Moreau through the character of Kurtz
5: because um, Brando was still very um, really, um, hung up on Kurtz from Apocalypse Now and kept mm-hmm. um, trying to um, turn Moreau into Kurtz suggesting initially that he should be wearing black, just be a face hanging in the shadows and disappear into darkness which he'd done before on Apocalypse Now and mm-hmm. had um, no intention going down that route. So instead I seem to recall we entered into a very lengthy um, roundabout discussion about the horror of whiteness and the particular horror of the, sh- of the shade of white going through Melville and Moby Dick and uh-huh. um, Edgar Allan Poe and um, co- um, the whole um, colonial underpinnings. What's um, what's Poe's
2: dissertation on whiteness? Well, it's
5: just the the number of um, shock horror moments in Poe's stories which come down to being white, like Madeline Usher in her white dress outside the door when um, Roderick in House of the Usher opens it, or um, the death of the characters in, say, Manuscript Found in the Bottle, or um, Arthur Gordon Pym, Surrounded by Ice, the inhabitants of the the Black Island of Salal, and Arthur Gordon Pym, who have a, a horror of whiteness. The mm-hmm. um, a, a bunch of different. I love um, that. Yeah, Takili Lee is what the seagulls scream, in Arthur Gordon Pym, Takili Lee, which is um, apparently the word for white in um, the Poe story but even the seagulls scream and scream at the explorers so this horror of whiteness theme and yeah, I can say coming right through Melville as well um, was something. Was I think the way I led it with um, Brando and that's actually why he's wearing that white gauze and the white zinc cream in the movie, it went to the yeah. opposite of the black um, yes. we've got to get away from Kurtz and go the other way um, yes. the white zinc cream was because of the it it's meant to be in the near future it's meant to be in the original draft the goddamn thing is after a limited nuclear exchange uh, right. he's le- legitimately worried about skin cancer and yes. the lack of the ozone layer which but this reasoning is taken away in the frankenheimer movies so we never get an explanation as to why Moreau is wearing this white zinc cream and these white veils when he's he's going outside yes. but there there is a legitimate reason for it it's not just because he's screwing around uh, and um if there um there'd been something res- resembling a script. And if it hadn't been um, a complete abattoir on the actual set, and um, Brando was also coming off the recent death of his daughter, Cheyenne, and was in um, terrible emotional shape. Um, yes. And he yeah, wasn't given a lot of help in, um, in Australia. I don't think he got a lot of moral support out there. I think by the time he, he reached the place and found that um, the island was a, a total shambles, that um, the script had imploded, um, yeah. He, yeah, he stopped caring. But there's, there's the ghost of a performance in there.
2: Yeah, well, you, you see that in the biography, the, uh, that wonderful doc, Listen to Me, Marlon, where once the daughter killed herself, it was just a, kind of much of the life went out of him. Um, so you take off several years before you're back on a set with Nick Cage and you're into the Lovecraftian vein there. I love Brother Lovecraft as well. Uh, how did that come together? How did you put that film together after so many years of taking off?
5: Series of events. I've always been a lifelong Lovecraft fan. Been huge in him since I was a kid. Um, really feel that the man's time has come. That um, for whatever reason, a lot of the concepts in the Lovecraft stories are landing extremely well now in the um, in the 21st century, and there's um, probably some kind of um, crazy reason for that. So it's been something of a crusade. It was uh, it was largely the um, commitment of Nick Cage that enabled um, Color Out of Space to um, to get made. Now, Color Out of Space is a script you wrote. Yeah, I adapted Color Out of Space from the, um, the classic um, H.P. Lovecraft story, myself yes. and my co-writer. How'd you connect with Nick? Uh, yeah, I was put in touch with um, Nick in a, a roundabout way. It was actually, the, I think, the producer, Josh Waller, who managed to get a copy of the script into, into Nick's hands. Uh, then he read the thing, and it turned out he too was a Lovecraft fan. Uh, right. and, um, connected with the material and wanted to be um, Nathan Gardner. Uh, that um, then enabled us to get the beast rolling. We only had Nick for um four weeks. And um, we're basically able to put together a, a two month shoot in um, Portugal, which um, got the thing done. What's next? What do you gonna do next? Well, um, I want to make another Lovecraft movie. And um, I've got a script, and I think it's um, the best goddamn thing I've ever written. I think my entire life has been leading up to it. It's a movie called Dunwich. Uh, it's oh, like Dunwich it. Horror? way and it's going to take we need to go back on campus and we need to go back to Miskatonic University now in the present day uh, to um, confront the things that are in that story and yeah what I wanted to ask you is would you consider making a Lovecraft movie?
2: Yes This is ending on the most, this is ending on a note I only dreamed of. I mean, it's very hard for me to pitch myself. And here I am with you. I am a great admirer of yours. I think you are, I mean, this is an overworked word, but you are a visionary. You are a visionary filmmaker. I will come and just play the butler. I don't care. Mm -hmm. I'll ring the dinner bell and say, you know, uh, dessert is served, my lord. I don't care. I'd like
5: you to read for Professor Armitage, who is the the lead, and he's also essentially the scripts version of Richard Dawkins. I'm very interested in Dawkins' series about religious memes and consider that um, the Cthulhu Mythos is a perfect illustration of his
2: series. I think you are an amazing filmmaker, and I, I really want to uh, explore this with you because I would love to work with you. I would love to work with you. And I would love to work
5: with you, sir. I think you're a super fine actor, and it's an absolute honor and a
2: privilege. Director Richard Stanley. You can learn more about his work at the official RichardStanley.com. This episode was recorded at CDM Studios in New York City. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Daniel Gingrich. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio.